The mating of two personalities is like the contact of two chemical substances. If there is any reaction, both are transformed. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Sweden, Matthew Russell and Limbaugh Christmas. Oh, we have baby Carl Young Jung. Jung, 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 Jung. I mean, the Swedish, uh, me, Swedish me. I want to say Jung. I guess Jung, Jung. I, I don't know. I think that it guy, is Jung, the famous psychiatrist I think, guy. Yeah, I think I, you, you got it right. <laughs> I, I'm pretty certain. Yeah. Um, how are you, Lynn? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm going to open this with with an apology about how long this episode has taken to come out. Been busy with lo- with lots of life. I, I managed to get COVID. Oh no! Which wasn't oh. too bad. Which wasn't too bad. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm vaccinated up, so make sure you get good vaccinated boy. up. Triple dose, everyone. I was triple dosed, and then I good boy. Ma- I, I've, I've managed to avoid it. I don't know how I've managed to avoid it, but I eventually succumb. So oh, no. that was that. And then, unfortunately, my dad died. And I'm going to dedicate oh. this episode to my old man, Richard Russell. You should. His claim to fame for space thing is that uh, he came from Kent, which is where he went to school with James Burke. Have you ever seen that clip where James Burke is walking and he's explaining rocketry? And, yeah. Uh, Von Braun. And then he points to a rocket just as it oh, yes, ignites and takes off. It's a very famous clip. It's amazing. So, yeah. So, my dad went to school with him. Really? So, uh, yeah. That's, so, that's his little. Yeah. So, and also, he used to hear and see the uh, V2 rockets going over Kent when he lived there really? as a child during the, during wow. the Second World War. Yeah. And, 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 as a, and as, uh, when he was doing uh, his national service, he actually sort of went to the places in Germany where the where the rockets were actually built he actually wow. went to sort of one of the V2 that were sort of hidden underneath these massive what's like, it was <laughs> it, so, it sounds like it sounds like a Thomas Pynchon book <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it does a little bit so yeah so my uh, you know and my dad got me into music so I'm dedicating this podcast to, to my to my dear old dad who passed away absolutely to him the other news is that uh, lynn and i are going to go monthly podcasts isn't that right lynn yes it is yes and i'm very yes. excited to become a a uh, more permanent fixture of everybody's ear ear holes uh, yes <laughs> so, <laughs> i'm so, yeah, so sorry for... <laughs> <laughs> the, the patreon uh, subscription will now plummet <laughs> yeah. like a v2 rocket <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so it's it's going to be a monthly podcast which obviously we're going to up our up our podcasting game yes uh, uh and uh and yeah so uh it may return weekly one day when i get less busy in life who but, knows uh, but who knows but yes it's monthly high quality with the yeah. marvelous lynn very popular co-host we're, uh, <laughs> we're going for quality <laughs> over quantity in this case yes it, 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 and- exactly we're starting with now, so uh, tell us a little bit about our guest, Lynn. So today we have a very exciting guest who I guess is kind of like the, the third installment in a little series. We had our wonderful astrobiology guest and our wonderful astrogeology guest, I guess. Um, and so today we have Dr. Catherine Walsh, who is at the um, University of Leeds, 
who's a very, very wonderful person. Uh, I happen to know Catherine because I did my master's at Leeds um, and she was very inspirational uh, and very kind. Uh, she's a very, very excellent, both an excellent scientist and an excellent person. And I absolutely demanded to have her on the show because she has the coolest job. I feel like in space, everybody has kind of a cool job because it's space related. But astrochemistry, is this not just the most wonderful combination of words in the entire world? Astrochemistry. It's very cool, as you, as you will hear. It seems to be a very important area of study, right? <laughs> absolutely. I mean, and you know me, I always bang on about my dear exoplanets, but absolutely um, in any kind of planet formation, really it's, it's chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. And all the other parts about how planets form, the formation processes are, you guessed it, rooted in chemistry. Because all these fun things like pressures and temperatures and stuff like that, it is, it is really in the chemistry domain. Um, blurred lines to physics, fine. But, uh, you know, if we're looking at how do atoms and molecules do stuff, then I would argue this is more chemistry than physics. Yeah, and I, I really love that whole concept of, yeah, that even the physics, that even the sort of big physics, the kind of stuff that you'd think, yeah. oh, why is that happening, is affected by the chemistry. and, and Absolutely. Uh, because, yeah, because and vice versa. So, it's very, very counterintuitive, isn't it? Because space is different to our experience here on Earth. A hundred percent. This is something that Catherine will very much underline. I mean, when you think about chemistry and you're picturing like uh, little cute purple test tubes and pouring liquids into one or the other, space is a whole different game. <laughs> it's uh, we've got magnetic fields, we've got low temperatures, we've got high temperatures, we've got everything you can imagine and more. It's terrifying. It, it, indeed, it is. Well, <laughs> in, it, it's so terrifying. It's it's really long interview. So I think we should probably get straight to it. What do you think? Let's do it. Akute, the interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. So we're joined on the podcast by Catherine Walsh up at Leeds University. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So you're an astrochemist. Take us back to roughly what that's about and, and how you got into it. So astro astrochemistry is effectively the study of chemistry that happens in space. Um, so, you know, you, you can think of typical chemistry being done in a lab where you have someone maybe mixing some liquids or working with some gas <laughs> in a laboratory and making measurements. Well, we do exactly the same thing, except that we're looking at chemistry happening in really, really extreme environments. So on Earth, we are about 300 Kelvin temperature. We have a pressure of about one bar. But in space, you've got a huge range of different conditions under which chemistry can happen from very, very tenuous, where you've only got a few particles per centimetre cubed, all the way up to dense atmospheres like the Earth. And, and Venus, for example, would be another example of that. And you're going over many, many temperature, orders of magnitude temperature range as well, from very, very cold environments that are only a few degrees above absolute zero all the way to thousands and thousands of, of Kelvin, which would be like in a, you know, around a star, that kind of thing. So the chemistry that happens on Earth happens over a very small parameter range, but the chemistry that happens in space happens over a huge range of physical conditions, not only just in temperature and pressure or density, but also the fact that if you're nearby a very hot star, then you get radiation happening that kind of triggers a lot of very interesting chemistry as well. So, so what do astrochemists do? Well, we, we study the chemistry that happens in those extreme environments. 
And we're really interested to see how molecules form and are destroyed over the, that huge range in physical conditions. And that's just very interesting from a physical chemistry perspective because it's taking us outside of what we know on Earth. The other side of it is that molecules, which is really what we study, it's molecules rather than atoms. Molecules have a huge amount of information about their environment. So we can actually see light coming from molecules, usually at very low frequencies, much lower frequencies than our eyes can see. And that light tells us a lot of information about, about the molecule itself, how abundant it is, how warm it is, uh, but also tells us something about the environment too, such as what the, the density is, what the UV field is, the radiation field is. So there's kind of two sides of the coin. There's number one, looking at physical chemistry in extreme environments, and number two, using light from molecules in order to learn something about the environments that they're sitting in. So as an astronomer, that's all you have really is light. You know, you can't, uh, well, you've gravitational waves now as well, but anyway. <laughs> we've multi, count in we're in the era of multi-messenger astrophysics, but, but most astronomers use light to kind of figure out information from their, their environment. Uh, yeah, and I'm assuming that gravitational waves are of no use to the astrochemist. <laughs> chemist. Uh, <laughs> or are they? Or is I'm there not any sure. I'd have to think about that. I mean, they're, they're definitely a signature of extreme events. You know, we have to have something mm. very extreme happening, like, you know, neutron star mergers and things like that in order to generate gravitational waves. But gravity is such a weak force. It doesn't really talk to the scales that molecules are existing on, which is mm. more, you know, Coulomb force, that kind of thing, electrostatic forces. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, obviously, the the obvious question then is is how on earth? Well, there's two questions <laughs> I I thought was is like how on earth do do you study the chemi chemistry that's that's light years away? Yeah. And 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 how do you unravel? Because you said sort of said there's two sides mm -hmm. to the coin. Presumably there's a bit of unraveling there to do as well if the if there's light from the star and there's light from the actual molecules themselves or or have I got that yeah, kind of wrong? You can't you can't really just go up to a big gas cloud with a beaker and like scoop it up and be like, Oh yes, delicious, here's some gaseous methane or yeah. whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So so how are you doing it? Is it is it presumably it's telescopes? Yeah. But are they space or land-based telescopes well, the most useful? We use both, actually. And again, molecules are really interesting probes, other than atoms would be the other thing that people think that shine with light. We all know about, you know, atomic spectroscopy. If you remember from chemistry, you burn potassium and it's purple, I think. Sodium is yellow. Those are electrons jumping Sounds around right, yeah. in the... <laughs> jumping around in, in the atom that, that's then uh, creating very light at very discrete wavelengths, which tells you what, what atom it is or what metal it is. And we use the same principle for molecules, except molecules are more powerful than atoms because they emit light right across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, all the way from kind of radio waves up to um, visible and UV wavelengths, which is where we typically see uh, atoms like hydrogen and helium as well. And the reason for that is because molecules, um, so they're, they're a collection of atoms that are bounded in a particular way through covalent bonds, um, which means that they're identified by the fact that they have a unique shape and they're made out of a unique combination of various um, atoms. So you not only have elect electrons jumping about in, in molecules, mole molecules can also rotate 
and change energy. Oh no. Yeah. It's so much worse. <laughs> and they can also vibrate <laughs> and rotate at the same time as well and change energy oh, no. as well. <laughs> so and these transitions tend to happen at uh, longer wavelengths than atomic or, or electronic transitions, which are visible UV wavelengths. And that's really powerful, actually, because you only excite atoms in really hot gas, like in a star. But if you want to see something like it, like Lynn says, like a gas cloud at 10 Kelvin, you're not going to get any electronic transitions happening there. Right. What you are going to get are small molecules that can change rotational state. And then jumping between those rotational states, they, they emit light and they emit light at long wavelengths, typically. Um, so if we take like the most commonly observed molecule in space, that's carbon monoxide. It's a bit boring, but it's just full of <laughs> I prefer bigger, <laughs> more exciting molecules. So carbon monoxide rotates. It's a linear rotor. Sorry, carbon monoxide, <laughs> if you're listening. We don't really like it here I'm... on Earth either. It's a bit dangerous. No, <laughs> it's, it's a bit deathy, yeah. It's got bad press. Yeah, it's got, a, well, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's got a bad press on Earth, but it's actually really useful as a, as a, as a molecular yeah. probe in, in space. But, but it can rotate and change energy state. And when it rotates, it emits light at microwave radio wavelengths, so a few millimeters. And to see millimeter wavelengths um, light, we use um, radio antenna effectively. So um, the, the telescope that I would use most in my research is ALMA, which is Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. And it's a huge array of telescopes in the Atacama Desert in Chile that operates just about millimetre wavelengths. And that's what we use kind of to, to look at, especially um, at high resolution, to look at objects at high resolution. Uh, but carbon monoxide and other simple molecules like water and like CO2 would be another one, um, also have vibrational transitions. And those are higher energy because it takes more energy to, to make a molecule vibrate than rotate. I mean, you know that yourself sure. if you've got you know, a ball on a string or something, you have to kind of pull on the string or pull on the elastic to make it <laughs> make it vibrate. But to actually make it rotate, it doesn't take very much energy at all. So you can kind of sure. get that, that principle. Um, that makes sense. But the infrared, so, so vibrational transitions happen in the infrared. And there, especially for molecular vibrational transitions like CO2, water, we really need to go to space for that. Because the Earth is about 300 Kelvin and emits quite strongly in infrared radiation. So we kind of need to get away from the earth, go up into space, um, shield ourselves from the sun and everything to cool down sufficiently to, to see vibrational transitions of molecules. Um, for example, the next big mission that, that will do that is JWST, um, which is, I think, in science commissioning at the moment. And uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah Woo. they've got. They've got the. Can't believe after however many decades. Yeah. So we. This is where we're at. We now have a brand new infrared mission, um, and James Webb, James Webb, or w, JWST, whatever you prefer to call it, it's a big debate over the name, of course. <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll be looking at those vibrational transitions and molecules primarily. So that's kind of those, I would say ALMA and JWST are two big astrochemistry telescope powerhouses at the moment. Yeah. But obviously there's a lot more um, facilities right across the globe that, that we use as well. We don't, we're not just constrained to, yeah. to big arrays of telescopes. We can use single dish telescopes as well. 
and I feel like it's a big question that's either really obvious or not obvious at all, but like, what are we looking for, you know, when we're looking at planet forming disks and stuff like that, you know, for, or the question that we're looking for the answer to. So, you, so you're talking about disks now around young stars? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess, I guess in every sense, you know, because something that I thought was really cool when I first learned about it is there are so many molecules in yes. space. And everyone's like, oh, hydrogen this, hydrogen that, it's 98%. Yeah, but there are still so many different kinds of molecules. And not only that they exist in the first place, but that we actually have been able to conclusively say, this is what this molecule is. I think that's so cool. Yeah, and I, I, I think that we've been able to do that because of what we call laboratory astrochemistry. So that's where we try to mimic mm. the conditions in space in the lab. And we try to yeah, recreate. So I think, Matt, your question was like, how do we, you know, the two sides of the coin? Well, like yeah. that we say with the telescopes, but on the, on, the, on the other hand, we have a huge amount of laboratory and experimental effort going on trying to replicate what we see or not even replicate, understand what we see. So yeah. <laughs> effectively making a little interstellar molecular cloud in a lab if you like, to, to try to understand why these clouds are, are composed of the molecules that they are, but also how those molecules have formed and survived in those environments uh, in, the, in the first yeah. place. Um, I've forgotten your question, though. <laughs> well, I've, actually, I, I'm going to ask a pre-question to Linz, which is what would probably need answering is what are the, what are the places where you find astrochemistry? Yeah. There's no point just pointing everywhere? into deep space everywhere. right I mean, absolutely well yeah. even so everywhere is, but are there or are, are, are there special places are like no. like you, we, we mentioned protoplanetary disks so I, I would imagine that that's quite a good place but are there other places so, other than so those i think i think at? we can we can look at it on different scales so for example let's start on the larger scales and then we'll come down to planets so on the mm. largest scales we do astrochemistry of galaxies now so galaxies that are not the Milky Way, other galaxies, right? And gal I'm not a galactic astronomer or extragalactic astronomer. So my, my <laughs> knowledge is really just about what, what we're kind of learning astrochemically. Galaxies exist. Galaxies and they probably exist, but they're different. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> they're different from each other. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> to some extent, probably. And but they have a sort of average chemical content yeah, or something? Yeah, like kind of so... I guess that depends on the age. And starburst, like star, star, um, star formation activity, metallicity, you know. So, so how, how so how, how many heavy elements you have relative to your lighter elements? So, there's people doing now extragalactic astrochemistry. So, really looking at what the composition of on on a galactic scale is in yeah. galaxies um, that are not the Milky Way. We we have a very very kind of narrow view of the Milky Way because we're inside of it. <laughs> so, you know, we, don't even, we, we kind of have inferred the, the morphology. It's got at least two spiral arms. There's probably more satellite arms. We've kind of been able to, to map that using molecules, by the way, and hydrogen. Thank you, molecules. <laughs> give you, and hydrogen gets they, a shout they, out too. <laughs> they tell you how the gas is moving. Um, yeah. But but actually trying to place what we know about the chemistry and molecular composition of our galaxy in context, people that people are doing on galactic scales. And they're looking, they're resolving the chemistry that's happening, you know, very, very close to the galactic center around, you know, the black hole or even around kind of, kind of very active galaxies. And then looking at how that chemistry varies as you move away from the galactic center. 
Um, so that's kind of the big scale picture. Now we kind of zoom into our galaxy. Um, the kind of the biggest regions that we look at in astrochemistry are star formation regions. So places, big, big gas clouds, like Lynn has said, where either stars will form. These are the cold environments. So they're dense enough for star formation to happen at some point in the future. And why do we look at the chemistry in those environments? It tells us something about the composition of the gas that will form those stars and their surrounding planetary systems. So that's that's like stellar nurseries, things like yeah. the Eagle Nebula. Exactly. And, and yeah. yeah. So ones. you're probably very familiar with the Eagle Nebula kind of optical light image where you have the kind of pillars of creation which are dark in that image and they're dark because they're full of molecular gas and dust that's kind of obscuring the light that, that's being emitted by the kind of cluster of stars. Yeah, they're not empty. <laughs> they're not empty. They look empty in an the optical. Opposite. <laughs> they're actually really yeah. full of, of dust and gas. So, so Yeah, so you're able to look at the chemistry of those dark clouds. Yeah, and, and, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and again, we look across many different star formation regions, different ages, different masses, and kind of look at the variation of composition that, that we see across those different star-forming environments. And we also look at environments that are forming high-mass stars, like towards the galactic centre. That has a very different chemistry, actually. The galactic centre is kind of really, really full of very, you know, hot, warm gas that's really efficient at making complex organic molecules, so molecules that are quite large, around six, seven, eight or more atoms and contain carbon. Um, and that environment just seems to be really, really provide a really rich environment for creating these quite, quite large species. So, um, so we see a difference in chemistry between nearby star forming regions that will form low mass stars like the sun, but also towards high mass star forming regions towards the galactic center where uh, we'll, you'll form probably a population of high mass and low mass stars together. So we see, we see chemical variations across those, those different environments. Um, and then if we, if we kind of zoom, zoom in again, we're looking kind of around an individual star. Um, if you take, so another um, area where molecules are really, really important that I, I don't think people appreciate. <laughs> I'm becoming like... <laughs> Is, and I teach this to my undergraduate students as well. I don't think they appreciate it. Maybe not for the same reasons, but anyway, they're not. just a bit bored <laughs> and want to pass their exam, really. Um, <laughs> so, so stars form from the collapse of, of, of clouds, basically clouds of dust and gas. And for that to happen, you need gravity to win over thermal pressure. So thermal pressure is pushing outwards and gravity is pulling inwards. Now, in order for a collapse to happen, gravity, gravity has to win. So that means you have to reduce the thermal pressure. And the only way you can really reduce the thermal pressure is by cooling the cloud, because that reduces the temperature. And the only way that you can cool the cloud, because it's very low density, is through radiation. And because it's very low temperature to start with, the only radiation you can emit is via molecular rotational transitions. So mm. stars only form because we have molecules that are able to radiate away energy and actually cool the clouds significantly such that gravity wins over thermal pressure. So how, how did that how did that work in the very early universe? Is that a bit of a mystery? Really good question. About the first stars. Really good question. There's a huge area of research which is about the first stars. Um, the conditions then were probably much more dense than they are now. 
So we don't have the same kind of um, issues with kind of collisions. So collisions would have been much more common. Um, but it's a really good question. And the first stars were probably very massive and, of course, had to be formed from clouds of just hydrogen and, and helium and, and a bit of lithium or whatever else we had then. Uh, but, yeah, but the, the first population of stars would have looked very different to what star formation yeah. looks like now because of this effect. Yeah. And I guess also if it was mostly hydrogen, then that also affects what kind of thermal pressures arise in a hydrogen gas versus a, a more molecular gas. Exactly. Yeah. So so yeah. the same physics still... That's really cool. Yeah, the same physics would still... Super yeah, cool. But the same physics would still have had to have applied, but the physical yeah. conditions would have been very, very different, um, which meant that you weren't maybe limited to... You wouldn't have needed the molecules in order to get gravity to win so much in yeah. those early times. Yeah. So then, where did molecules come from? I mean, uh, they, they, you know, elements are formed in the stars and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the more, the more crazy out there molecules that uh, we start seeing, like you have these longer carbon chains and stuff like that. Where, where do you think? Do we know where those came from? How they started forming? How long ago? All these stuff. So I think we've got a fairly good understanding of kind of the basic processes that happen through many, many decades of effort. So astrochemistry would have started back in the 1950s when the first... Oh, that's um, recent. Yeah, yeah when, the, when the first molecules were detected in space. Um, and it's kind of just accelerated since then, of course. Um, <laughs> so so I think you mentioned the first important step was that which is that you have a generation of stars that burn lighter elements and create heavy ones and then they through their kind of stellar death processes which can be supernova or yeah supernova or AGN <laughs> winds or not, not AGN winds AGB stars asymptotic jam branch stars have outflows that kind of um, continuously pump dust and um, gas into the interstellar medium so, so that's the first important step because you need your heavy elements in order to make molecules that aren't hydrogen, H2. Yeah. Um, and the next thing that you need, so, so if you imagine that you've had that first generation of stars, you've got your interstellar medium, which is the space in between the stars. So in order for a reaction to happen in that kind of environment, you need two things to meet. And... When these two things meet, you kind of need the reaction to happen straight away. You can't have any activation barrier or anything like that because you're just at such yeah. low temperatures. You just would not have enough energy to overcome that barrier. So a lot of chemistry that happens in the interstellar medium is ion molecule chemistry. And that's where you have an ion, so a charged molecule or, or atom that reacts with a neutral molecule or atom because it can happen both ways. Yeah. And that interaction is actually an attractive interaction because you've got a positive, you've got a positively charged molecule that is approaching a neutral molecule, but that has an electron cloud that actually polarizes that molecule, creates a little slightly negative charge on one side, slightly positive charge on the other side. And that actually helps to enhance the collision of those two species. Um, and like two magnets. Going yeah, across a table. <laughs> kind of, it's a Coulomb-like interaction with Van der Waals kind of... There's yeah. a polarisation that happens that creates an electrostatic enhancement, if you like, yeah. of, the, of the two reactants. 
So, and, and a lot of the molecules that, that we see in space happen through these pathways. So basically two things collide and they react upon meeting immediately. And actually the reaction rate can even be enhanced because one of them has an electric charge. And there was a huge amount of work done, I think, back in the 1980s, I think, just looking at these ion molecule reactions. So we actually have a really good understanding of which reactions happen. Laboratory astrophysics has provided a huge amount of data that, that, that we need to interpret our observations, like reaction rate coefficients, which tell you how fast a reaction happens. Um, so we have a pretty good, a pretty good understanding uh, of that. And we think that that's very much how some of these very long chain hydrocarbons actually form. And they form through these subsequent ion molecule reactions where you kind of insert a carbon each time. Uh, and then maybe the energy is carried away by a hydrogen or something, something lighter like that. Um, but there's kind of other chemistry that happens as well that that's, has been less well studied and is only really coming into the fore now in like since maybe the 1990s onwards. And that's surface chemistry. So, so things actually sticking to a surface and reacting on the surface. Um, and for example, water, water's everywhere in space. Water's not a particularly scarce molecule. <laughs> it's really important <laughs> for life. We know that, but it's not particularly hard to find in space because yeah. it uses oxygen and hydrogen, which are the most two the most abundant elements that we have in space. But the way that most water forms in space is actually on the surface of dust grains. Um, and the way that it forms is that you've oxygen atoms stick to the dust grain and then hydrogens can add. And that this, this doesn't need any energy. It can all happen at 10 Kelvin. Um, so you can form Which water, is very cold. <laughs> which is, yeah, it's almost the coldest you can really get. Um, yeah. So, so the water is ice when it's... Yeah. Formed, yeah. Right? yeah. I guess it's ice flakes. Little tiny snowballs no. crystallizing and growing. Yeah. It's a Christmas yeah, it almost, miracle. Yeah, it almost seems impossible that you could have a reaction that, that creates ice in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Just, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the conditions are such that, and this is why it's really hard for us to recreate in the lab, it's low density and very low temperature. So you don't have a liquid phase of matter. You've only got gas and ice. And then the exchange between the two, which is absorption and sublimation effectively. There's no, there's no liquid phase because we don't have the pressure needed to create or, or help something like water stay hmm. you really need to be on a planet for that to to happen well i mean it's even hard on mars isn't it to, to keep that uh, without things sublimating and and having a exactly because i think mars yeah. is a good cup couple of orders is it one millibar on mars i think at the surface yeah. something, yeah. something like yeah. that and that that even is too low pressure to kind of maintain a liquid water yeah presence on the yeah. surface yeah which doesn't make it doesn't seem make it very ideal for life. No. On yeah. my, <laughs> I think this is not great. I'm not I'm not running there to live there. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really get the appeal myself. It's a fascinating place, but I mean, the terraforming would have to have been very advanced by the time I would yeah. let myself do a rock. I'll take my chances with Venus. <laughs> we need to go the other way with Venus, wouldn't we? We need to kind of lose yeah. lose heavy elements exactly. in Venus's yeah. atmosphere and make it lighter. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly. I'm assuming. I'm assuming when you were telling us your story of zooming out from galaxies yeah. all the way down to, do you do you kind of leave it at planets. To, is is that would that be exochemistry or do you, or do you delve in that? So yeah, so I think like by the time we get we formed our star, molecules have been very important in that process, as I've described. Um, 
so we 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 create you know planets form within what we call these protoplanetary disks around young stars and they form really naturally through the physics of collapse with rotation it's basically just you know um, material moving inwards it's got some viscosity that's spinning you know like a pizza base you know it's mm. got some pliability you spin it it's, it flattens out it's kind of a similar principle um, so you're kind of exploring the kind of the use of the centrifugal force there as well to keep things confined to what we call the ecliptic plane uh, of the mid plane of the disc um, and these discs are typically much more dense than the interstellar medium. So we, we kind of get a, a, almost a different phase of chemistry that starts to happen at that point. Um, we have, for example, I think, Matt, you'd mentioned, you know, got, you know the, the concept of ice in space. And, you know, the, I followed that up with saying that we've only got two phases of matter. So there's a really important region in, in discs around young stars, which is called the snow line. And um, this is, happens in the mid-plane of this disk that's orbiting around a young star. And because as you move away from the star, it's the star itself that's controlling the temperature of the disk. So as you move away, the temperature decreases. Remember, these are much denser objects as well than, than the interstellar clouds. Yeah. And you'll reach a temperature uh, below which water can't exist in, in the gas phase anymore. And you create water ice again. Or the water ice you've inherited from an earlier phase kind of sits in that region of the disk. So inside the snow line, you've got water gas. Outside the snow line, you've got water ice. And you have actually multiple snow lines as well. So CO2 would freeze out or adsorb at a lower temperature than water. So that sits further out. And we even get regions in disks because they're so dense where we even lose carbon monoxide from the gas as well. And that's all that frozen out. Oxide? Yeah. So, so basically in the outer regions of disks, it's, there, there can only be hydrogen and helium. Because you've actually... Really? Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe tiny amounts of other heavier yeah, molecules. Yeah, trace. Yeah, so you kind of end up with this kind of, I don't know, radial stratification of gas and ice uh, abundances just yeah. because of the different sublimation properties of, of the different molecules. Yeah, yeah. Couple that with the fact that you're being irradiated by a star. <laughs> A very close by <laughs> a young star, star so a maybe a very star. angry UV kind yeah. of and then you end pubescent up with, tantrum star. Yeah, especially <laughs> when it's young, it can kind of you know have a few tantrums and blast yeah. out a lot of X-rays. Exactly, accelerated particles. It's not a phase. <laughs> Teenage phase, yeah. Uh, exactly and uh and and you know all that radiation penetrates the kind of top of the disc and kind of yeah. creates also a vertically stratified chemistry going on so you've got all this, yeah, this yeah. Ice, ice ice stratification going on in the mid plane and then in through the disc atmosphere if you like yeah. you've got another kind of vertical stratification going on yeah the pizza dough has like a cheese filled crust there's like some stuff going on yeah, in the middle or you've well. got multiple <laughs> layers in your pizza so yeah you've yeah. asked the pizza it's, it's more like a lasagna at that point <laughs> yeah a lasagna would be better <laughs> it's like a lasagna oh, pizza. Now. or actually more oh like God, a, a pizza made from phyllo pastry or something like that yes so exactly like yeah. oh, okay except now i'm definitely each, hungry yeah, no no i'm going to, yeah, I'm the, going too the, far the only... we stretch the analogy <laughs> <laughs> but the, the only difference is in your in your in your lasagna pizza, the yeah. upper layers are hotter than the inner layers. Because usually when you dig into your lasagna, it's like lava oh, yeah. at the bottom. It's the other way around. Exactly. <laughs> okay, the opposite way. Opposite way. 
Um, so, so all this chemistry that happens at this phase is essentially then what sets what happens with the planets that, that form there. Yeah. So yeah, I can. Im- I mean, the planet formation processes we've we've talked about on this podcast before, and like it's so complicated. And frankly, we don't know exactly. Um, and there are the 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 thing I always talk about that I love about planets. I mean, stars and all their glory, but they're more predictable in a way. You can kind of say if you know X, Y, and Z, you can kind of say something about its age and its mass and all this stuff but planets are wild <laughs> you can't be like oh this one is this mass so therefore we know this thing like they're <laughs> they're much uh, much less consistent let's say and i guess it all comes down to the chemistry from the from the disc and i think we're starting to understand a little bit more by that and again this is even newer science because this is the exoplanet yeah. basically you know we, we we see the solar system and we have some the, you know, the, the snow line that I mentioned is quite important because we think the snow line set, you know, set where the terrestrial planets formed, which are ice poor in the inner region, and where the gas giants formed, which are not so much ice rich, but at least heavy element rich, which would have been yeah. through the accretion of these ices. And we've had that picture for a few decades now. But now that we're kind of getting into the era of proper statistics on exoplanets although we're still biased by what we can see which is yeah we we still can't really see a jupiter very well around a sun-like star Mm. we can't detect an earth yet yeah we're still kind of a triangle of our parameter space we haven't populated but there's so many strange things we see that i don't think our traditional picture of how the solar system form fits at all yeah and yeah I think part of the answer to that query or question is that all these disks look very different from each other. Yeah. And there's a huge diversity. And whilst they might share some characteristics, the sheer diversity that you can have through just your mass distribution, your heating from your star, the chemistry that happens, just leaves some kind of fingerprint on the type of planetary system you form then. Absolutely. It's like the soil from which the flowers grow. And then on top of that, you've got all the different kinds of weather and all the different kinds of seeds. Yeah, and that's stuff, a nice way to think about it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, but it, yeah, I mean, it's even worse than the, like the soil gets affected by the plant that's growing yeah. in it. Exactly. As well, as it, and chain, what part chain, of the world is it? And like, yeah, it, is, exactly. there, so, yeah. is there an angry teenage son nearby? <laughs> all this stuff. How complicated do the molecules get? I mean, I, I've, I've heard, obviously you see those news articles where, where you can get drunk in in <laughs> yeah, the ethanol. they're all, they're all made <laughs> yeah. of methanol and things like that but but i mean how how complicated does it actually how complicated how big can these organic chemicals get or carbon chains get and and as an as an uh, addendum to that when we're talking organic we're not talking life necessarily right because oh. people hear organic then they think like uh, organic chicken free range molecules yeah we're, we're just talking about having some carbon <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Which life does need because you know it's yes. kind of the backbone yeah. of carbon-based you know, part. We're, yeah. We're, we're really just big bags of molecules at the end of the day. Delicious. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how complex can they get? Um, it depends on the environment. So, so the biggest molecules we've seen in space are very weird. They are the Buckminster Fullerenes, and they look like a football. Oh, yeah. And they're mean they're carbon. Yeah, the carbon six. The buckyballs. Buckyballs. Yeah. And there's yeah. no hydrogen. They're just a buckyball. And they're really <laughs> weird. How did that form? I don't know. 
<laughs> that is such a step. How did you go from carbon atoms to something that is very regular and stable? Yeah. That's really interesting. Well structured, yeah. Very well structured. And we see buckyballs in actually quite chemically interesting regions, which are in planetary nebula. So this is the cool. phase after, it's kind of the phase after a star starts to throw out its outer, outer layers and is evolving into usually quite a complex, beautiful planetary nebula. So you've maybe seen quite a few uh, nice, beautiful, visible wavelengths. Um, yeah, it's like the, yeah. the Eskimo the Eskimo Nebula and the Iris yeah. Nebula. All those really those beautiful the ones, wallpapers. Yeah, the ones we <laughs> the all have wallpapers. wallpapers on our on our Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um and the Buckminster Fullerene was detected in, in one of those. So so there's obviously something about the physical conditions after these stars die that really allows formation of these large stable molecules. And then kind of on the other end end of it, which is kind of where your carbon chains can go. So we're kind of getting up to 13, 14 atoms, I think. Wow. Be the biggest ones that we've seen. Yeah, so you've got, yeah, I think 13 atoms is the longest carbon chain we find. And that, that's, that's a really weird molecule. That's thir- uh, 11 carbon atoms in a straight line with a hydrogen at one end and a nitrogen at the other end. Very weird. Why? There's loads of hydrogen. The listeners did not just see the wonderful shrug that Catherine just did. (laughs) You know, and I hinted that we kind we think we know how these long chain hydrocarbons form. It's ion molecule chemistry where carbon gets inserted sequentially, Um, but it's still a really weird molecule. You'd never form that on Earth, right? But we see we see it in interstellar uh, clouds, and then we and then we can kind of see you know, what we would call complex organic molecules. So I think you've mentioned ethanol. We can say things like acetone. If you remember from your organic chemistry in school. Oh, yes. You know, I esters, it. ethers. I was going to say, what's the one that smells like pear drops? Is that the ester? <laughs> that's the ester. That's yeah. esters and ketone. What's, so what's oh, the yeah, most like... Does. What's the most like life relevant? I feel like this is I'm, I sound like a, a pop, like a journalist who's shoehorning a pop science uh, headline oh. into this. But like, what's the most life relevant <laughs> molecule that we found? I mean, yeah. I mean, you see, you'll see. There's, there's been a raft of papers recently which are finding more and more complex molecules that are kind of precursors to. <laughs> bits of amino acids or bits of sugars or bits of fatty acids so 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 those kind of key molecules that life needs which are um amino acids proteins um fatty acids things like that we we don't see them at least not in in space no but we, we see things that kind of look like they could be part Make of them. the reaction yeah. chain towards yeah. these larger molecules. Yeah, but I mean, just because you find them in planetary disks, these kind of complex, like building blocks for amino acids, doesn't mean that they survive planetary formation. So, so no, we, well, this is the thing. So, like the water that we find in protoplanetary disks, if we do, I mean, would would water have been? on Earth's surfaces from the beginning or would it have been added later on? Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's a few different questions there. So, so, so I want to clarify, <laughs> we don't see these big molecules in disks, unfortunately, because they're really tiny no? objects, but we see, we see them more in star-forming environments. Okay. 
okay. we're still a bit limited in what we can see in in discs. Um, but your question on whether or not molecules can survive star formation and the assembly of the disc, I think that they can. And one of the, this is another facet of astrochemistry that's quite interesting that I haven't touched upon. And that's um, something called isotopic fractionation, fancy term. So, <laughs> so, um, so um, at very low temperatures, molecules prefer to have heavy atoms rather than the lighter atoms. So what you end up getting at low temperatures is, for example, something like water, Lynn, like you said, preferring to have deuterium yeah. instead of hydrogen. So oh, you, yeah. you make things like heavy water. Heavy water, yeah. yeah. So HDO or D2O. And that applies to other molecules like formaldehyde. We prefer to have HDCO um, oh, instead of H2CO. So, so at low temperatures, you get an enhancement of the deuterated version of the molecule versus the uh, regular version of the molecule. So that's right. what, so this ends up being like a fingerprint on the Yeah. Screen. So and we can I guess like the like carbon dating style of like the ratios of isotopes. A little bit. I think it, what what those isotopic ratios tell you is something about the temperature history of that molecule because if yeah. that molecule had been exposed to higher temperatures at some point in its life and had never seen lower temperatures again, then you would expect that isotopic fingerprint if you like to have been erased yeah but we see enhancements in discs and we see enhancements in the solar system so we do think that a lot of the objects we look at have assembled quite quiescently and that some mm. of the you know ice and stuff that we have in the outer solar system hasn't actually seen high temperatures and has actually just been brought down and it's been sitting sitting in the disc ready for planets and comets and things like that to form um yeah so there is there is some evidence that um, some of the material we have in this, and our best evidence is the solar system, of course, because we can actually touch almost the, the material in a way. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we see nearly go and do the scooping out. <laughs> yeah, so we do see enhancements. So, like for example, the water on Earth is heavier in deuterium than yeah. the underlying deuterium elemental ratio in the universe. So there's mm. an enhancement there that's been preserved. Um, yeah. And we think that that's a pretty good indicator of late delivery of water via impacts from asteroids right. and comets. Right, yes, yeah. yes. So it's not that, that the water sense. was present when the Earth was there. That would have the isotopic yeah. fingerprint of whatever temperature the Earth was forming at. Yeah. But actually, we we have been able to deliver colder material. Yeah. So this yeah. is kind of another, this is astrochemistry, again, giving us information about Right. Something about the history and environment. Thank you, which, astrochemistry. Yeah, within which, you know, the Earth even formed as well. Yeah. I have a really formative childhood memory of this, of like being at some kind of science outreach thing. And I was like six or something. And I remember being told, we don't know where the water on, on Earth came from. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I need yeah. to study this. <laughs> there is, there is. You'll still see a bit of debate about it in the literature. There's still some schools of thought the earth accreted what they call wet right so that there was ice available at the time that the earth formed and that what we see now is that ice you know a mixture yeah. of like you know some late delivery and and the water seeping yeah, up from yeah. the earth so, so so i would say it's still not solved but certainly the evidence kind of points towards yeah, yeah. um yeah the, 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 the and and yeah the analysis of rosetta yes uh, yes, it wasn't wasn't particularly helpful, was it? it? They were expecting it to be more of a slam slam dunk for cometry 
delivery and it turned yeah. out not to be. And, and I think what, what, what Rosetta showed us that was really interesting was that, you know, we, we have a terrible habit of classifying things in astronomy and <laughs> we like things to be in nice boxes and, you know, yeah. the school of thought was that the Earth cloud comet, comet sat in this nice box and the, you know, Kuiper belt objects you know, short period comets sat in this other type of box. And actually that's not the case at all. <laughs> that these two Surprise. populations are actually are not so so distinct. So, yeah. so again, again, really interesting <clears throat> from thinking about, you know, just the history of all of the, the material that's been in the solar system for four and a half billion years. I, I sp- yeah, I suppose that 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 whole thing of misclassification is—it's a bit like taking clothes out of a washing machine and trying to work out what order they went in when you put <laughs> them in. That's a really good analogy. Really? I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we've we've spoken about that before. You know, we spoke about the the Nice model for um for the, how the solar system formed. At the end of the day, we can't go back in time and check. We, there was no CCTV footage. We can't go back and be like, oh right, this is how that happened. We can we can extrapolate our best guesses and we can see evidences, but I mean, really, it's so, it's doing CSI on a t- on a very old <laughs> site so, crime so scene. The, so the, the next best thing that we can do is is look at and try to measure the composition of the comet forming regions and disks around other stars. Yeah. You know, so we that, yeah, that's right. not giving us insight into our solar system because we can't do that, but it at least gives us an insight into other forming planetary systems and we certainly can, we can kind of start to say right what did what did what do they look like now because they will evolve yeah, into yeah. another planetary system so we can do that test but it's true yeah. that that it's just so much has happened over the past you know few you know giga years that to try and disentangle yeah. it all is, is really really hard yeah and I mean that's also the kind of the motivation to look at well, really anything in the universe. And I'm, when we started looking at, at uh, different solar systems, which was not that long ago uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know, if imagine that you were a human and you had never met another human ever, <laughs> then you might look at your hands and be like, well, I have five fingers on this hand and five on the others. Is that, is that too many fingers? Is that, is that not enough fingers? Or if you were born with purple hair and you might be like, well, obviously everyone has purple hair, but you know, what else is different? So if, with a sample size of one, you can't say that much. And no. I think this is like looking at these disks that we talked about and stuff like that. The more we look at, the more we can start to see what are the similarities, what are the differences. And the things that they have in common might then be a sign of a, a, a grander uh, um, you know, structure or mechanism mm-hmm. on, on how that works. And then the anomal- uh, anomalies can be all the little, little fun personal quirks of each system. Yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, that, that's the way that the especially for you know discs around young stars that's the way the field has to go now you know we've been yeah. very very de- we've been kind of doing that you know very detailed studies of individual systems that we know very well finding out that yeah. they're all different from each other and different to what we expected but we really yeah. kind of yeah. you know expand out and really start to do kind of systematic chemical yes. studies of, of these um yeah. You know, of discs around stars and, you know, across all a different range of star forming regions. And um, I'm hoping, you know, with ALMA that, that that's something that we'll be able to move towards uh, in the future to do yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Really, really, really what, place what we know about the solar system in better context, I think. Yeah, so what, what, yeah. Are, what are the priorities of the astrochemistry community in terms yeah. of, is, is, it, is it trying to find out, you know, how life formed on, on Earth or is it <laughs> finding out how, because we, I mean, we learned that, that, that astro, that the actual kind of chemical makeup of, mm-hmm. of, a, of a 
protoplanetary disk, for example, affects the geology of a planet mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, and it's, 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 it's like really important. So what, what, what the kind of main, what's yeah. if, in the community, what's the, what's the big push? What's the, what's yeah. the scientific push in, in over the next say decade or two yeah. decades? You've got a to, huge to, grant. To, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. What, what? Too many things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a, I think that, you know, the overarching big, big question that, that, in fact, I think all of us that work in many different facets of astronomy is, you know, where did life come from and are we the only planet on which life is able to have started and thrived? And, you know, what what feeds that question are many, many different facets of which astrochemistry is one of them. And I think as as an astrochemist, I want want to know, you know, you know, how are are the, you know, we we kind of have an idea, we have some idea or a theory of how at least the ingredients that the Earth needed to start life arrived on the planet. We know that we needed water. We know that we needed organic material because... The Earth formed really, really in a horrible way through massive collisions <laughs> that was really molten. You would not have wanted to be there. Traumatizing. <laughs> Stuff must have happened only when it cooled down and it had a solid surface. Yeah. And, and again, this feeds into this idea of late delivery of surface material, right. the surface material that you need. Where does that surface material come from? They are the regions of the protoplanetary disk, right? And it's locked Ta-da. up in asteroids <laughs> and comets. Where do asteroids and comets come from? The material that was present in the disk around the young star at the time that the planets were forming. Where did the disk come from? Well, it formed from remnant material left over from the collapse of a molecular cloud. So you you have this thread which goes from what happened on the Earth, the material in the disk, the initial composition of the disk, all the way back to the molecular cloud. And what, mm. what, what I'm really interested in is, you know, how far back does that kind of inheritance go? Does it yeah. all actually start in interstellar clouds? You know, so yeah. trying to figure out how complex molecules can yeah. get in those environments with the idea that some of that is preserved all the way through that process. Yeah. That's really exciting because if we make these big molecules everywhere, that means that the basic ingredients are everywhere and life, yeah. provided that the planetary conditions are suitable, yeah. should at least be able to get some kind of a start. Provided, uh, you know, yeah. there's a big if, 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 you know, yeah. <laughs> provided that, provided that, provided that. And I think that's really, really interesting. Um, yeah. just, just from that fundamental perspective. And we're doing a lot, as I said, through um, some of the examples that I give. We are really trying to, to, to determine whether or not material in disks, in the disks that are actively forming planets now, whether that material has been very processed or if it actually does inherit or preserve some of that kind of uh, complexity yeah. that, that we see in interstellar clouds. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. The- I mean, I was reading one of your last papers. Yeah. Well, trying my best to read one, and, and that, that that was that seemed to that seemed to have evidence that you'd kind of got from one of these, uh, you know, big molecular clouds that, that there was methanol in this in the yeah. in the disk. So 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 you and so there was some evidence that you had that that, that it had made it as exactly. far as that. Yeah. And that, that that was quite an interesting paper. So it was a nature astronomy paper led by Alice Booth, who's now a, she was a PhD student with me in Leeds and is now a postdoc in, in Leiden Observatory. 
and we 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 did we we weren't looking for methanol. We just put it in the spectral setup because we thought that, well, well, that uh, might only be in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be drinking methanol if I were you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that can go really wrong. Pure, um, straight from the cloud. Yeah. Uh, uh, not even the tramps <laughs> drink methanol. <laughs> it's a very bad idea. Um, but yeah, so so we we weren't looking for it, but we found it by accident because we do, we do these little serendipitous, oh, let's see if that's there when we're kind of, our, you know, we're looking for something else. We did find the other thing as well, but this was almost a supplementary science thing. And the fact that we found methanol there was a pretty good indicator that for that object, that disc, that the ice that was present in that disc could not have been exposed or been processed to any high temperatures because you only make methanol ice at 10 Kelvin. You cannot make it at higher temperatures, less than 20 Kelvin. So, yeah. so that's why that that's why that result made it into nature astronomy because it was kind of a really key. It was the first. It was the second time we'd ever find methanol in a disc. We'd find it for the first time in a disc around quite a warm star. So the disc itself is yeah. very warm, and the fact that we see it at all means that you know the ice that has made it into that disc must not have seen temperatures that high. So really, because you were finding it in the ice state, or we find it in the gas phase, the, but we yeah, find it in we find phase. it in the inner region where it's being it sublimates. Right, um, right, 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 right. But the reason that we know it's ice sublimating is that you cannot make methanol very efficiently in the gas phase. That that's something that again laboratory yeah. astrochemistry has has determined quite a few Thank years you. ago. So it's really really hard to make in the gas phase. It's very easy to make in the ice phase so long as you yeah. have uh, temperatures below about 20 kelvin yeah um so we're certainly and, but again this is one object about <laughs> a particular object we kind of need to start to think about is that particular to that object is this something that's yeah. actually more widely uh, seen in fact there's two objects now there was irs 48 as well where, where they saw actually methanol yeah. as well which is the a very weird object. It's got a big lopsided uh, dust disc <laughs> as well. Um, so yes, yeah, so well, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Go ahead. Go on. No, go ahead. Oh, I, I can't remember what I was gonna say. So <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was gonna say. Um, you know what I'm gonna say now, right? I'm gonna say my catchphrase. Something I say in pretty much every single episode. We want more telescope time. This is always the answer to anything. <laughs> like we want more objects, more time, more science. <laughs> I, th- I think so. And, and, you know, but a lot of what we're doing is with ALMA. And yeah. ALMA is going to have decades-long lifetime. Um, we're not constrained by the fact it's floating in space and might run out of coolant. Yeah. It's sitting on the ground. There we can upgrade it and it repair up- it if it needed. Exactly. It, and they're looking at adding on more receivers to, get, to increase the frequency range and everything. So we have a really brilliant instrument at our disposal yeah. on the ground. It's going to be operating for decades. We will get it done. It will just take time, I think. Well, this is something I, that one of the, as a sort of closing statement, but something I think is so cool about chemistry is that maybe maybe people don't realize that chemistry is a much more flexible process, let's say, than, um, you know, creating elements is hard to do. That's when you're changing the proton number in an atom. Mm-hmm. But chemistry is more to do with what you do in the electrons around the atoms. And chemistry can happen backwards and forwards, upside down and all these different things. And so it's, it's 
something that can, like when we were talking about the material and the discs and stuff, I'm sure there is research um, about, you know, how you can uh, <laughs> gain or lose different types of actually the, the like types of atoms and the types of species in a disc. But like what kind of chemistry is going on in a disc? That is much more something that can vary over time. And, and that's what I think is so cool about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, just, just taking ourselves outside of the pressure and temperature regime of the Earth. You just, yeah. the parameter space you're, you're, is <laughs> well, huge. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah I, mean, it, I mean, it seems so counterintuitive. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I mean, I've definitely learned, like, just the fact that you can make these complex, c- complex, uh, you know, like, chemicals at yeah. very low temperatures. Yeah. I, that, that just seems to me, like, completely you, like, are you sure? My, <laughs> you, yeah. you always think you need energy. But actually, and again, this is counterintuitive because people don't think about chemical reactions in this way. But, you know, a lot of the so, so these surface reactions that I was talking about, making a making a covalent bond, making a molecular bond is actually usually exoergic. It's usually releasing yeah. energy. And actually yeah. what creates the molecule is the ability for that molecule to lose that energy. Otherwise, the atoms split themselves apart. So what surf what the surface does is absorbs that extra energy and allows the bond to stabilize. Mm. So it's not mm. that you need to put energy yeah. in, it's actually that you need to absorb the energy. Yeah. Which, yeah. Again, yeah. it's very counterintuitive because you're at 10 Kelvin, right? I mean, yeah, um, think about the vibe like if you have heat and something's vibrating, I feel actually when you really think about it, it's more intuitive for it to work at cold temperatures because then things are not <laughs> so shaky. Yeah, it's, and yeah, and you know, there's a lot of people that work on, you know, combustion chemistry, for example, which is tends to be quite high temperatures because they want things to 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 burn. <laughs> that's yeah. a very neat, you know, that, that happens under very specific conditions. Yeah. That get that that kind of chemistry uh, happening, but you, you, you don't always need an input of energy to create create a molecule. And in fact, you yeah. can do a lot without any energy at all or very, very yeah. little energy. You still need things to meet. You still need things to collide, yes. even on a surface. So long as you have enough energy and enough time for things yeah. to meet, then <laughs> you can do chemistry in space. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, astrochemistry seems to sit somewhere between astrophysics and astrobiology, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's got the astrophysics, yeah, yeah. turns into astrochemistry yeah. that eventually turns into astrobiology. But I feel sorry for the astrobiologists because presumably they've got a sample pool of nothing so far. Give them 20 years. <laughs> Give them yeah, 50 years. I think, you know, astrobiology is really changing as a field, I think, from... I, I think people would have said you know, even be just 10, 15, 20 years ago, that it was incredibly speculative. That yes. it was a lot of hypothesizing without experiment, but it's definitely gone the other way now. It's definitely a lot more about experimentation, a lot more about fieldwork and figuring out how life survives in extreme environments on the earth. Because mm. we, we do see life in extreme environments on the earth and like simulating, you know, it, it has moved on as a field from being, quite speculative to actually being really robust experimental yeah yeah field which involves a lot of field work and a lot of um testing of those hypotheses you know (laughs) under what conditions can can life uh exist yeah so yeah. Oh, that that was me trying to cajole you into saying how much better astrobiology <laughs> and and you defended your astrobiology. I think it's really fascinating when I when I see <laughs> there's so many people that are working so hard to kind of 
you know, and they're really cut. We're we're going we're going in that direction. We're about here, although you can't see my hands probably in the podcast. Astrobiology <laughs> is coming from the other direction and trying to trace backwards. Yes, and we're really in the middle. We're really still very far apart, I think. But I think that we're definitely yeah. getting there. And we're making it's the Eurostar tunnel. They're digging towards each other. Yeah, And I mean, it's 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 um it's something that I mean, uh, this would not be a real episode of this podcast if I did not mention how great exoplanets are. And I mean, the <laughs> fact that we are now trying to um actually not just detect exoplanet atmospheres, but actually characterize them and say something about what's going on um on this planet as a sort of climate. I think all of these things um, um are are all going to contribute to to um figuring out how astrobiology or exobiology would would work in mm-hmm. in, in principle I, th- I think if you if you give me a big load of money and you know say go, <laughs> go and do what you want like 10 phd students yeah. well the big load of money i would need because i would need to build something i think i would love a probe to go out to enceladus or europa I think those yes. are the next best places in the solar system yeah. where we might see some evidence of either yeah. current or extinct life potentially. Well, that's why I'm excited about juice. That's going to yes. Europe, I think. Yeah. 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 So, and I think that that's what we need to do. We need to start thinking about we're, we're, we have a very Earth centric view. We know what yeah. life basically needs. You know, we know we need liquid water. It's a universal solvent. Yeah. It allows molecules to self-assemble, which is really important for building structures that then life kind of builds itself upon. Yeah. We need to go to where we know there's liquid water. And we need we mm. need to look there. And I, I, you know, I really hope that a sample return mission or a probe that would go through the, you know, the plumes yeah. that, yes. that we see out that way. I like really hope that something like that. Theme park ride. <laughs> Yeah, that happens in, in my lifetime because I think that would be great. But, yeah, I mean, that just that just shows how far that field has moved. Yes. I mean, just the fact that we call it the Goldilocks zone, yeah. and yet really the two best candidates sit outside of the Goldilocks yeah. zone, right? And so, and so yeah. Yeah, but they, Europa. They, you know, they have the right conditions. It's just not surface conditions. Yeah. And that's something that we have to think about yeah. again from the earth. Let's not we be surface about, biased. Yeah, we have sur- yeah. surface bias. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you might e- you might even be um, chemically biased. Mm. You, like, go to go to Titan, and you might yeah. find that there's even more fascinating kind of biological chemistry going on. I mean, well, there there, there so, is there is a mission to Titan that will be the Dragonfly mission. Oh, yeah. so that's already that's already going to happen. So, and it will be a little helicopter that will fly around. Um, yeah, that's that's insane. Which is great. I love so, space. So I think Titan Titan's got a tick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tick for Titan. And that's I, the I, hashtag. I think the, the icy moons, I think, is something that, that that we should think about definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, someone was trying to explain the problem with the icy moons and the, and the fact that the ice is so thick. It's really we've, thick. We've never it, we've never driven anywhere near that far, even on Earth. <laughs> we were like yeah, not I even mean, the Russians with all their gear. I think we've only got a few kilometers, haven't we? Is it like maybe yeah. ten kilometer rings a bell? But it's yeah, embarrassing, really. Yeah, <laughs> you might, yeah which is yeah. yeah, it's not even scratching no. the surface, is it? But but this but. is where the the cracks and the, the plumes where the water yeah. can actually yeah, yeah, things yeah. can escape to space would be 
would be the thing to 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 do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it'd be so yeah, if it's undoubtedly the most exciting mission ever, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think either so. of those yeah, two things. So. I mean, that dragonfly mission. You know, is so if I had that forty-four yeah. billion, that's that's what I <laughs> that's what I would do with forty-four billion. Well, well instead yeah. of buying Twitter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's a point. That's a really good point. <laughs> What the hell's Musk doing? Yeah. I'd rather have yeah. What you can do? He's even he's even got the launcher. Yeah, <laughs> don't even need that. He can even do it cheap. I think yeah. it, it gives you a sense of the priorities of. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Unfortunately, wow, this has been so cool and so great. Well, it's been really good. We've had three guests in a row, which have all these kind of on a sort yeah. of common theme. Oh, astrobiology, astrogeology, astrochemistry. Oh, brilliant. brilliant. And this this is tied it together nicely, actually, because it, this, uh, this talking about astrochemistry actually is a great bridge between sort of astrogeology and astrobiology, yeah. because a lot of it is, the, the conclusion for a lot of them is it depends <laughs> on chemistry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really did. Like that, that whole idea of a planet maintaining its atmosphere yeah. and having yeah, yeah. plate tectonics yeah. was all about, yeah, what was the chemistry? of yeah, the disc yeah, before it yeah. collapsed yeah it's amazing it's, yeah it's really important and uh i think i think i think we do probably need to talk more to each other <laughs> which yes. we are trying to do it's just really hard at the moment with no yeah. conference well conferences are starting to come uh, yeah. back again um but you know i do miss those conversations that you would have with somebody who you know gave an yeah. astrobiology talk and like ah oh, i'm really interested to talk to you about something <laughs> you said and this is how you make exactly. connections between the fields and, and things as well yeah. so um we do need to have more definitely more of those cross um interdisciplinary yeah um discussions because I this think, yeah. yeah because the space industry is it's both very good at it compared to <clears throat> maybe some other fields but also definitely needs more interdisciplinary um collaboration let's say because I a lot of people I think so. specialize think, into something and then yeah yeah and I, I think part part of it is that we we you know we do our phd we start working in a particular area and we're safe there yeah <laughs> you know we're, we're safe in our area and when i go to yeah. talk to other people they know more about that than i do and I, yeah. we really need to kind of just get rid of all of that you know yeah everyone wants worry. to be the king having the king the king of their domain kind of thing and be expert little, in their field but it'd be bit, great too yeah a little bit but i think you know funding funding bodies funding councils are definitely moving more towards trying to um um award funding to interdisciplinary Absolutely. research and certainly in the Absolutely. uk that's that's now a given i don't think yeah i think it's really hard <laughs> now to <laughs> get any grant without saying that you're transformative in some way and, and yeah. transcending saying that you can do exoplanet fields. stuff <laughs> yeah well <it's> exoplanet <laughs> helps but you know but being yeah. an astrochemist I, I work with lots of different people so I'm really lucky yeah, yeah. that I already have that interdisciplinarity built in and yeah, I think it really sure. helps because you know I can just go to chemists and ask them quite naive questions and they're happy to do that the same the other yeah. way around so, so just kind of being in that already in a field that that does bring together a lot of diverse people yeah. really helps break down those barriers between between absolutely the and I think that we definitely need more of the planet formation, planetary evolution, protoplanetary disk astrobiology yes. people all all getting together yeah. and talking yeah. more definitely yeah. How, how how did you get into this field in the first place? What was your what was your journey? To, oh, to completely by accident. I did not plan it. Slipped on a banana peel. 
So I, I did a degree in applied maths and physics. That was my primary degree. And I was choosing my final year project. And I saw a project that looked really interesting. And it was in the Atomistic Simulation Centre at Queen's University, where I did my, my undergraduate. And it was about building a quantum mechanical model of water. So I actually wow. did my, my master's level project in what they call atomistic simulation, or you could call it molecular physics right? or quantum chemistry, right? It's all the same <laughs> Depending thing. how fancy you want to Depending who you talk to. And I really enjoyed that. And actually, they, the work that I, I did didn't make it into a paper, but it certainly inspired a paper that, that, that was done by another researcher in, in a couple of years, which was really nice to see as well. Um, so they were excited enough by what I'd found that they, they'd actually written up a, a, a PhD project um, to work to keep working on it. But cool. <laughs> oh no! And my PhD supervisor just recently joined Queens. That's Professor Tom Miller, um, who came over from Manchester, and he's an astrochemist. He's one of the kind of uh-huh. big astrochemists that's been working the OG. For many decades, especially in kind of the compilation of reaction rate data for use in databases and also looking at, you know, extreme chemistry and like around evolved stars and star forming regions and everything as well. And he wrote up a PhD description for looking at chemistry and protoplanetary disks. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. So it was really just a whim. I, I went to talk to him. I kept being interested I started reading up a little bit about <laughs> Thank it God. and I had to go sorry guys I'm going to go over and do astrochemistry now <laughs> and I ended up stay, staying there to do my PhD but it was it was not by design I did not know what astrochemistry was before I started yeah. my PhD which sounds ridiculous now but um, <laughs> it just triggered enough of my interest that I was like I'd really yeah. like to, to to do this yeah yeah well, that's the cool thing about astrochemistry because it's already kind of an interdisciplinary subject. You can come from the chemistry way or yeah. from the astronomy way. Yeah, and kind of luckily enough, I had, you know, my astrophysics background was was fine because I'd taken those modules because yeah. I, I just I just wanted to do a very flexible undergraduate degree. So, but I'd always loved yeah. maths as well. So I liked having the applied maths. But, you know, my, you know, Queen's is a, you know, a, has a big center of kind of just molecular physics as well. So I got really good background in that too. And I think yeah. that, that I, I could I could see that what I had been doing could could be, you know, applied to 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 the yeah. project. So completely by accident, not by design, a bit <laughs> on a whim, but it all worked out in the end, which is great. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> That's a really good it's a really good story, isn't it, that you yeah. can go you can know you just do the things that really interest and you yeah. kind of find, you hear that, find kids? a place that's kind of what i did and like i kind yeah, of yeah. do advise students to to do that no i think it's like yeah, yeah. Don't overthink it too much are you interested in this no don't do it yeah. you don't yeah. want to wait you know, <laughs> or kind of no do follow what you're interested in and then yeah. you'll commit yourself to it you'll stick with it because doing a PhD is really hard <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah and it's a huge amount of you know emotional effort as well yes. as just you know putting the time it's in your to get baby. all the work done do something that you're really interested in um, absolutely follow your follow your whims follow your heart yeah. follow you know just something piques your interest and then go and explore it I think yeah and I mean, scientists are unhinged anyway. We're psychotic because we are so <laughs> obsessive. Like nobody should dedicate their whole life to one little thing, but we do it and we love it. And I'm so glad we do it. <laughs> 
So, I mean, you already have to have a, a sort of a <laughs> level a little, of... A, a little bit of a, yeah, yeah. There has to be a little bit of an obsessive... Yes, for sure. ...nature there. But you shouldn't, it never should be to the extent that you don't take your holidays or your weekends off. No, absolutely or, you not. Know, you know, you still have to, and I think that we are getting better... Yeah. You know, you know, with the team that I have now, I'm like work-life balance. I don't work weekends. Yes. You shouldn't work weekends. Absolutely. But if you no. want to, that's fine. But you shouldn't. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> they get worried yeah, because they go, but I really yeah. need to get this thing done. And that's fine. But yeah. take Monday off then, so. right? Yes, you know, so, exactly. So you know, I really but it's try. Also... I really try yeah, to kind on. of instill that that you know, take your holidays. Yeah working in the yeah. evenings you know with, with some flexibility because everybody's different you know if you're not yeah. a nine to five person you don't have to do nine to five you can do no. ten to six or you can do eight to twelve and take two hours off yeah. and, you know so yeah so, so arrange your working week how you want what works for you yeah. but don't overwork yeah. don't do more than your exactly. you know, 40 hours a week because that's all it takes to yeah. do a phd there's this you yeah. know you don't need to be doing 60 70 hours a week so long as you're yeah. well organized you're on top of things you ask for help when yeah. you need it you can get it done in three years four years no it's problem. really nice to hear you say that as well because i think that's a lot of phd students have that anxiety as well where you feel like you have to i mean at the end of the day it is quote just a job in the sense that it yeah. doesn't have to be your entire life and personality and and your legacy and whatever like you can yeah. be passionate about it and it's great to be passionate about your job but that is what it is at the end of the day. It is. And I think that, you know, you end up with the, sometimes this burnout because you devote so much time to it and you, you basically yes. end up sick of it. Whereas if yeah. you, you know, then then you really need to pace yourself. What you be a pace yourself. Exactly. And make yeah. sure that you keep, you know, hobbies on the side and that you, you take yeah. time to do other things. I used to always, like, I would never sacrifice my weekends because my brain just needs a break. <laughs> I, yes. I, Same. Friday, I switch off. Monday morning, I come back and, um, yeah, okay, what was yeah. I doing? Oh, that's why that wasn't working. You know, yeah, just... Yeah, <laughs> now you have the clarity. It, yeah. it, it's almost as if society has realised you need a weekend. Yes. Right? <laughs> it's like, three days, really. It's like, if I, if yeah, I, if exactly. I could go to a four-day working week, I would, because I think that extra yeah. day would bring even more clarity on a Monday. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the extra extra yeah. five days. Yeah, so, I, think, yeah. I think I have two a problem. Days. I probably have a problem where I may be too nice to myself because I very much try to do this thing because my philosophy is that I'm, you know, some people say things like I'm, I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. But my philosophy is I am here for a long time. And in order for me to stay around for a long time, I need to be having a good time. Yeah, well, that's a good <laughs> and point. And so I, yeah. I very much try to do um party party my, yeah exactly well respect my working hours and sometimes i'm like am i being too relaxed and then i try to convince myself that no it's okay no it's okay but. you should never punish yourself for taking time off and doing something else i mean that's the worst thing you can do if you need the time yeah. off take the take the time off because you will feel better for it after you've you know, decided to do that yeah yeah Career advice as well on this uh, podcast. We got we everything. Podcast advice from Catherine on work-life balance. Oh, I like that. I'd, I'd tune in every week. <laughs> thank you so much, Catherine, for joining yeah, us. Thank you it's for, been really thank interesting. for the opportunity. It was very nice to kind of just sit and chat, chat about science and reflect about how awesome nice your way. job is. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of like these kinds of chats that are kind of you know increase the enthusiasm a little bit after you've spent yeah. all day 
doing very boring things and yeah. writing emails, trying to find out information <laughs> and you can't figure out who to talk to. It seems to be mainly what I do every day is like yeah. trying to figure out who it is I need to talk to to uh, find something out. I mean, I often think this, that, that sometimes like when you're like PhD science type stuff where, where you're, where it's a lot of number crunching and there's lots of kind of, yeah. you're just, you're, you're, you're really in the woods, aren't you? And I guess yeah. it must be nice occasionally to sort of go, oh, that's what my work yeah. was. By oh yeah. And, this is amazing. Yeah. There's no answer sheet. This is the harder thing. Like there's not like, you don't do your assignment and publish a paper and then you check some magical book and you're like, am I right? Did I do it? Oh yeah. Full marks. <laughs> like. And it, it's it's yeah. it's like you know activities like this I think are really useful you know for, you know it's a two way thing for me because it helps me vocalize and think about the bigger picture yeah. and why we do things you know rather than just sitting and doing them and writing Absolutely. the paper and ticking the box mm. and things like that yeah well I really like doing public talks and podcasts and I've done a I did one for Ilkley Literature Festival I don't know if it was listened oh, to great. by anyone um so i i, I kind of you will now and now everyone's going to go listen to it <laughs> i enjoy this process of talking through what why we do what we do so it's really yeah. useful i think as well for, for us it's a two-way thing you know so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i think it's amazing I'm, I'm sure that there will be many listeners who will not have thought of even the concept of astrochemistry before who will now be googling yeah, phd in astrochemistry yeah, I, hope, I hope so yeah, it's so great, and it's been so nice catching up with you, Catherine. Yes, and, I, know, um, I know. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll see each other at some point. Absolutely, we'd love to have you back sometime. sometime. Yeah, definitely. Come awesome. and visit yeah. us and leave. Bye bye. Yeah. <laughs> see you later. Bye. The interplanetary podcast is alive. There you go, Lynn. I I thoroughly enjoyed that chat. Uh, I with, loved it with with Catherine. She was absolutely awesome. Um, what have you got? What have you got planned for the next? few weeks other than I writing the next amazing episode <laughs> of the inspiratory podcast <laughs> i think i think i'm going to be brushing up on my astrochemistry you know actually one thing that we totally should do is um i i realized listening back that um we talk a lot about astrochemistry in kind of a, a cold-ish regime but you know there's also astrochemistry happening in the atmospheres of stars this oh. is a very cool other side of astrochemistry. We should get someone who can talk about stellar atmospheres. And especially, you know, when you're looking at uh, star-like or solar-like stars, um, then there's less chemistry going on because it's really quite hot that molecules and stuff like that can't survive. Um, but cooler stars, like uh, more like red dwarf stars or, or M dwarfs and, and stars like that, they can have things like titanium oxide in the atmospheres of the star. Oh wow! Which is very cool. Well, there's also, been quite a pull. There's been quite a pull, cool picture of our own sun, hasn't there, by the European yeah. Solar Observatory, which is like some mega, mega, mega pixel. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I was absolutely. I was like looking at it on my computer screen, going, "No way!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's, exactly. It's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy. I also um, I also read um, apparently. I wish that we still had Catherine here to confirm this. Apparently, one of the things that we have found in space is urea. The thing that you find in urine, which is <laughs> oh, yeah, incredibly yeah. off-putting off in my mind, to have a big like urine cloud floating around somewhere. Well, yeah, the, the, this is a thing about nebulas, though, that they're very nebulous. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's so, a fine it's like mist might, of urine, more like. I, I would, yeah, and when, <laughs> when we say fine good. mist, we're talking fine mist, like really un fine, un unbelievably <laughs> fine. Mist. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're like bumping into a molecule. Is going to be lucky. Yeah, 
exactly. You can be like, but, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm prob- I'm so, still probably not going to go. <laughs> no, no, I th- I, I'm not going to go to any any form of nebula yeah, anytime I'll, soon. I'll stay I think here. I'll probably stuck to the earth. Unfortunately, I'm <laughs> never going to escape the gravity well. Um, no, life's unfair. No, that's so unfair. <laughs> right. Um, that's it. That's it, Lynn. Shall we? Uh, I'll, I'll, until next let's, month. Let's go read about uh, urine in space. And I'm we'll definitely going to read about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What animal, in, in the meantime, what animal weed in space <laughs> to Ooh. create that yeah. ure- urea mist? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to know. It's a very big space worm or something. Definitely a whale. Yeah. Some kind uh, of hitchhiker's re- reference. Oh. Yeah, a whalian. But <laughs> yeah. right, bye bye. Bye. Oh, God. Bye.